When I was in seminary studying to be a pastor, I used to have this professor, Dr. Coulter, who would listen to the stories of his students share about how they saw God move that week. One student would say, hey, I saw God move today when somebody shared their resources with somebody else in the church sacrificially. Then Dr. Coulter in his rough voice would say, wow, that sounds like Jesus. Then another student would say, hey, someone in my church anonymously gave me money when I didn't have any, and now I could pay rent this month. Then Dr. Coulter would say, wow, that smells like Jesus. Now, Dr. Coulter passed away a few years ago, but those remarks really stuck with me. I'm reminded that the church is at its best when it looks, feels, smells like Jesus. been a while since we talked about this, but a few months ago, we talked about a guy named Stephen in the book of Acts. He was one of those early church leaders who stood up against the religious institution of his day, and he argued that God is not confined to one ethnic group, that God is for everyone, and that got him killed. And he was killed by a man named Saul. Now, this happened around the time of a pilgrimage, meaning there's a lot of people who are visiting Jerusalem. While they were there, they witnessed the Jesus movement, became Jesus followers, and then stuck around. But because of Stephen's murder, a bunch of those people who were a part of the church, they went running back to their hometowns. They were scared. So today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 11 from verse 19. And when the story picks up, we now have a bunch of Jesus followers who are living outside of Jerusalem. Now, those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, travel as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spread the word only among Jews. So this is really interesting. The church is now scattered throughout the eastern Mediterranean Sea area, and they are optimally positioned to spread the love of Jesus to the people outside of Israel, right? Well, not exactly. The church, because of its persecution, was now scared of sharing the message with the people who are not Jews. But since the love of Jesus is so compelling, as it turns out, the Jews that received the message from the church, the scattered church, well, they went on and shared it with their Gentile neighbors. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is Luke's way of saying, hey look, the religious institution of the day used fear to keep the Jesus movement confined to one location, but Jesus' message is so compelling that it found a way to spread anyways, and the ripple continues. Now, eventually the news of the spread of the good news in Antioch among the Gentiles, it reached church headquarters back in Jerusalem. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So it seems that there was this custom when they ever heard of a Jesus movement happening somewhere, they'd always send one of their trusted guys to check it out. So in this specific instance, they sent a guy named Barnabas. Now, where have you heard that name before? Now, if you've been with us for the past few months, yes, we were introduced to this guy two chapters ago in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, Saul, the guy that's responsible for Stephen's death that we just talked about, well, he had a major encounter with Jesus and he transformed from the biggest enemy of the church to becoming the biggest advocate for the church. So when Saul arrived in Jerusalem to tell the church that now he's on their side, that he's a changed man, the church leaders had a hard time trusting him. And I totally understand. But Barnabas, this is where we're introduced to him, he shows up and vouches for Saul. 
He urges them to give Saul a second chance. And so far, that's all we know about him. And by the way, the name Barnabas literally means the son of encouragement. All right, so let's get back to our story. So Barnabas is sent to Antioch to check out this new growth of the church movement in Antioch, and he's tasked to do whatever he can to keep it growing and flourishing. And this is what's recorded about Barnabas' trip to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. When Barnabas showed up in Antioch, he couldn't believe his eyes. Scholar N.T. Wright describes what Barnabas could have seen. What Barnabas saw was not just a large and motley crowd of unlikely looking people crowding into someone's house, praising God and being taught about Jesus and the scriptures. What he saw was God's grace at work. Now Wright continues to tell us that the people of Antioch who were not part of the church would have been completely perplexed that they would be looking in from the outside saying, why are there so many people from different ethnicities and languages committing themselves to each other? So this is definitely good news. But Barnabas comes across a problem. As the church grows internationally, he realizes that that there's a lot of obstacles that Judaism wasn't equipped to face. Like, for example, the closer they move to the Greek and Roman cultures, the more you come across academics and philosophers. And that's not all, because you also come across other deities like Zeus, Athena, Nike, Poseidon. I mean, how is a Jew, who is now a Jesus follower, supposed to deal with this kind of culture? So Barnabas, he, he thought long and hard, and then eventually he had this epiphany. He knows a guy who is crazy smart, and not only that, He's also a Jesus follower and a Jewish person who is also trained in Greek philosophy. So if you're wondering who is this perfect candidate to be stationed in Antioch to help grow the church, well, it's Saul. Yeah, the guy who killed and arrested a bunch of Jesus followers then had a major conversion. Yes, the guy that the church had a hard time trusting because of his criminal record. Yeah, Barnabas recruited that guy to join in the efforts to build up the church in Antioch. Verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So if this were a movie, these verses would be like a montage of Barnabas and Saul teaching, meeting people, doing training sessions, and then sprinkled in the middle are short scenes of locals of Antioch mocking the church. Yeah, did you notice the part that says that the disciples were called Christians in Antioch? So the term Christian is a derogatory label that stuck with them, and eventually that term became embraced by the people of the church. So for about a decade or so, Christianity, the church, was in Jerusalem. That was the epicenter. But as the movement became more and more inclusive of Gentiles, the headquarters began to transition over to Antioch. And now, something really weird happens. During this time, some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So, a Christian prophet named Agabus shows up in Antioch with a bold prediction. And a historian named Flavius Josephus tells us that this actually happened in the year 46, just about five to six years after this prophecy was told. Now, before you move on with this story, there's a few things that we have to keep in mind regarding famines. The first thing we need to know is that people who had favor with the government officials, people who distributed grain, people who had major influences over wealth, these people usually survived without much hardship through famines because they had the right connections. But let's just say you're a Christian from the first century. 
all your connections are probably gone. Like if you were a Jew, you were cut off because you don't live according to the old covenant anymore. And if you're a Roman citizen, well, they wanted you arrested or dead because you don't bow down to Caesar because you believe that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So as you can probably tell, famines are extremely damaging to the communities of misfits like the Christians. So the Jesus followers, they only had a couple options. Option A, they could wait around for government charities to land on their laps, which is extremely unlikely. So they went with option B, which is they counted on other Christians to support them. Well, how does that work? Well, as it turns out in Antioch, there's a bunch of new Christians who still have their connections. So they use those connections to send food to the people in Jerusalem with a little bit of advance notice from a prophet. So that's the first thing that we need to know about famines. The second thing we need to know is that we got to keep in mind that famines usually cause people to hoard. I mean, just look back at the toilet paper shortage that we had like at the beginning of the pandemic. And that was even a famine. I mean, we all know that it's human nature to turn our attention to ourselves for the sake of survival. So let's take a look at how the church or these Christians behaved, especially in light of the fact that Barnabas and Saul has been teaching and training them in the ways of Jesus. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Yes, this is so glorious, right? I mean, while the prophecy, you know, predicting the future about the famine might impress you, the focus of the story, I hope you could tell, is supposed to be on the hearts of the Christians' ability to love selflessly. And that's not the whole story, because most of the Christians in Antioch were Greek, Roman, and Syrians, people who may have never heard of Israel's God. And they're sacrificially supporting a bunch of people in a city that is notorious for keeping Greeks, Romans, and Syrians out. Okay, so let's take a breather here. And let's just imagine for a second that we lived in Jerusalem and that we are devout Jews in the first century. And let's also assume that you're not a Jesus follower, but you've heard of this new movement happening, but you weren't interested in joining it. And as a devout Jew who follows the Old Testament, you made sure that you kept the distance and the separation between yourself and outsiders. But then you and your town were hit by a severe famine. I mean, you're hungry and you're not sure if your family's gonna survive another week. So you begin to beg on the streets, but even that doesn't help. You are super hungry and you are not sure if you and your family are gonna survive another week of this. So you begin to beg on the streets, but no one helps because everybody's turned their attention on themselves. Then a group of foreigners, they walk into your neighborhood. And at first you tell them to get lost because they're unclean. They're not allowed to be here. You don't show any respect to them, but they keep on insisting and they keep on bringing you food. And your entire life, you deemed them unclean. You spoke ill of them with your friends in the past. But these Greek, Roman, and Syrians show you kindness. And then you discover that these people sending you food are not only Gentiles, but they are also Jesus followers. You used to call them Christians to get a few laughs and to ridicule the fact that they foolishly believed that this Jesus of Nazareth was really the Christ. Now you're experiencing their generosity and kindness, and that's all you're getting from them. And then one day, when their generosity and kindness is all you get from them, you begin to get this idea that their kindness and love, well, is that what Jesus is all about? And that's the key here. You see, when these Christians automatically showed up and showed compassion and generosity, they were demonstrating to the world who Jesus is. And that is exactly what the church is. It's an extension of Jesus. So I have to ask this question. In today's world, is the church representing Jesus accurately? I mean, when the world looks at how we treat one another, do they see Jesus? 
I mean, sure, I understand that we're not perfect, that no one knows how to love perfectly as Jesus did, but are we displaying indicators to show that we are at least committed to moving in that direction? I mean, I get it because in the Old Covenant, our spirituality was measured by how well we could follow commandments. But in the New Covenant, our spiritual maturity is measured by how well we represent Jesus. I mean, every single person that is mentioned in today's story is a representative of Jesus. Barnabas, who gave Saul a second chance, is being like Jesus. Saul, who spent an entire year to teach and train these people, is being like Jesus. Agabus, who traveled 300 miles, about 15 days of travel on foot, to warn them of a coming famine, was being like Jesus. The church of Antioch that decided to give sacrificially to the people who treated them like unclean animals, was being like Jesus. And 2,000 years later today, are we also looking and feeling like Jesus to the world? I certainly hope so. So church, may you show compassion, kindness, generosity, sacrificial love to those around you so they can experience Jesus in their midst. And may the Holy Spirit continue to transform the church so we can represent Jesus well. And may we together experience heaven together. God bless.